0: Food media for so long has really excluded uh, people who are not middle to upper middle class. And it has also done a really bad job of giving Black women the capital to tell their own stories.
1: I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Read, a book club and podcast from Real Food Media, where we do a deep dive on the latest books on food, politics, and culture with the authors themselves. We're wrapping up the 2021 season with Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America by Mayuk Sen, a James Beard Award-winning author who has a unique insight into the world of food media and how it shapes our appetites. As I was reading this book, I was struck by the thoughtfulness in which Mayuk approached the stories and lives of these women, working diligently to get as full of a picture as possible and represent them in ways that honor who they are and the work that they did or are doing. This book also made me reflect about the women mostly immigrant women, who shaped food for me. I hope you enjoy this book and conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for taking time out of your whirlwind schedule to be here. How many launch events have you done so far, do you think?
0: Oh man, too many to count, which is a nice problem to have. My book tour has been a mix of in-person and virtual events, and it began well before that book was actually out. And then it's also been a lot of really nice, lovely interviews and uh, podcast appearances like this one. So I'm really excited to talk. And thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much. Okay. So throughout your like food media history, you've written quite a bit about food and obviously, obviously food and culinary figures who should be in our general history, but maybe aren't. And this book, Tastemakers Seven Women Who Revo- Revolutionized Food in America, is your first book. So that's exciting. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm 12 years old and I just came out with a book. You know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) this book was such a joy to read. You really dug into the various struggles of being an immigrant woman while avoiding the immigrants get the job done trope or narrative. And each story or each profile made me think of all immigrant women in my life, including my mother, Um, like what they've gone through, how they've survived, and the not often talked about impact or like cost of being. Quote unquote resilience. So, can you tell me what is the origin story of Tastemakers?
0: First of all, thank you. Thank you so much for reading me with uh, such generosity. I appreciate it, especially regarding this book, not wanting to advance the trope of immigrants to uh, get the job done and immigrants feed America, because that is precisely what I wanted to write against. So, the idea for this book really first came to me back in 2017 when I was a staff writer at a site called Food 52, which if listeners aren't familiar, is uh, mostly, or at least was back then, a home cooking-based website. It was a repository of recipes along with an e-commerce arm. But they hired me back in 2016 to be a staff writer who could write about a broader culture through the lens of food. I had not grown up uh, wanting to be a food writer. I didn't even think it was possible for me. I always thought it was the domain of rich, straight, white dudes. And I was just so not that in so many ways. But when I got to Food 52, I realized very acutely just how different I was from my peers. I was the only person of color on an editorial staff composed of uh, white women who were totally lovely and I adore them all. So, so talented have taught me so much. Yet I was just writing from a different center of gravity than a lot of my peers um, in my immediate workplace. And as a result, I really gravitated early in my food writing career towards Uh, The stories of figures who belong to marginalized communities like myself, ones who may not have uh, necessarily seen a place for themselves in this industry, yet worked hard to carve out a niche. And oftentimes these uh, figures were women of color, people of color more generally, queer people, immigrants, immigrants of color, you know, just (laughs) all the permutations, basically. And so I was writing a lot of stories. oftentimes posthumous profiles of these figures and trying to really uh, restore a sense of dignity and honor to them because I felt as though American cultural memory had not honored them in the same way that it does like you know Julie Child or James Beard for example right. anyway a friend of mine he looked at my budding body of work there at food 52 and he was like huh I wonder if there's a larger story to tell here about immigration and food in America and I was like it's yeah. oh, interesting but you know Back in 2017, I was 25 years old. I was total mess. I, this is like, <laughs> I am absolutely not ready to take on a book project. My goodness. So right. put it in my back pocket. Then fast forward to 2018 when I'm <laughs> 26 <laughs> years old. You know? One year it's later, like, so much more yeah,
1: awesome.
0: Ex- exactly, right? All of a sudden, <laughs> I'm like, you know what? Maybe I am ready to take on a project like this. And I had noticed over the course of that year from 2017 to 2018, uh, there have been so many narratives that are exactly like the ones that you were just talking about uh, that I saw in food media. There were these big, usually white-led food publications saying thing al- things along the lines of, immigrants feed America and immigrants get the job done. And while those might be statements of fact that are you know true,
1: right. to
0: me, I, the messenger felt so troubling because I realized that these were Affluent white folks who were saying this from a place of comfort. And to me, these sorts of talking points seem to further this notion that the value and worth of immigrant lives in America should be predicated on uh, their productivity and what they provide to a privileged consumer, like the kind that is at the very top of uh, the food media industry in America. And I really wanted to challenge that notion because I just saw it going unchecked uh, by so many people uh, around me in the industry. And I felt as though the most logical way for me to do that within my extremely limited skill set as a storyteller was to craft a series of seven portraits of uh, different women who had labored uh, in the food industry throughout American history. And through that, I would kind of weave this larger story of how difficult it is to survive as a creative person under American capitalism.
1: There's probably so many women who sort of fit this bill. And how did you choose these seven particular women?
0: Oh, yeah, that was definitely a struggle. And I will say that it changed from the proposal process to the actual writing process. So the seven women I had in my proposal are not the same seven I ended up writing about due to a variety of factors. But Initially, when I was mapping everything out in the proposal stage, I found potential subjects through searching two terms. The one was the Julia child of, and the <laughs> second was Craig Claiborne called her. And so, uh, for both, the reason why I did both those things is because uh, so many women, especially from marginalized communities throughout American history, have been called the Julia Child of their uh, country of origin or region, for example. Edna Lewis has often lazily been called the Julia Child of uh, the American South, for example. And, uh, you know, similar kind of uh, rhetoric applies to a lot of the women in this book. And I felt as though that whole trope <laughs> is right. so tiring to me as it exists within the American food media, even though I realize it may have had its place If I'm being charitable decades ago yet now it has uh, truly you know uh, it should age out or we should age out of it as a culture right it's so reductive and it flattens uh, you know a certain woman's legacy the person who's on the other side of that transaction and, and it does not have the same kind of power as uh, Julia child does even now in death in the american mind Anyway, uh, so I found a lot of different subjects th- through that sort of search. One of them was, for example, a Norma Shirley who is a Jamaican-born chef who was often called the Julia Child of Jamaica or the Julia Child of the Caribbean in spite of the fact that she had uh, her own rich legacy that deserved to be known and appreciated on its own terms. And then that second term, Craig Claiborne called her, so for listeners who aren't familiar, Craig Claiborne was the food editor of the New York Times beginning in 1957. I believe he had that position until the 1980s. During his time at the paper, he had really used that position to advocate for and champion uh, a lot of immigrant female voices. Uh, For example, Mother Jeffrey and uh, Marcella Hazan and a few other women who are in my book like Marcella and an endorsement from him in the paper record could really do a lot to open doors for uh, women otherwise uh, you know would not have easy access to capital and opportunity and so I found a lot of subjects who were kind of buried in history unfairly to my mind through those sorts of surges and so I had a big list of course and then I had the winnow and I was asking myself well what is it about this woman's story that is compelling in pure narrative terms because I wanted to make sure that this book was reaching an audience that you know, went beyond the food world. But then once I began <laughs> writing, I realized, okay, not that simple because so many of the women I uh, have featured in this book, uh, five in particular, are no longer with us. And so that meant that I had to rely solely on the archives along with memories of people who are still uh, alive and had been in their orbits. I really wanted to discover, uh, you know, texts, that showed these women speaking in their own voices, because I really wanted to understand how they wanted to present themselves to the world. And then I wanted to reconcile that with the way that the press may have rendered them and whether those two things diverged or whether they aligned in some way and what have you. And I found that some of the women whom I put in my proposal, they just did not have any memoirs or cookbooks of memoristic passages or They had not given enough interviews for me to really patch together a larger chronology of their lives while also respecting how they wanted to be seen by the outside and public world. And that was really tough. And it just reminded me of the fact that, you know, the archives themselves, they reflect so much of, I guess, the publishing industry's imbalances and A lot of these women, um, whom I profiled in this book, they have a degree of material privilege that allowed them to even record their stories at all for some, you know, uh, know, child historian like myself decades (laughs) later to, you know, sift through the archives and find their out of print memoirs and everything to do this kind of work. But they're other women who do not have those material privileges or same access to publishing channels and you know their stories have been concealed even more and so that was a challenge definitely
1: that reminds me of something my friend once told me i think we were talking about childhood photos and like childhood videos and he Mm -hmm. said to me that it's actually a privilege to have things like that saved just like memories of your past saved and it really stood out to me who who has the time or the capacity, the resources to like, to save all of these things. That's also assuming that you're like, probably not moving around that much that you have this like right. free time with your family. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah, it rests on so many assumptions. And so I really tried to be careful uh, in the framing of my book and in the introduction and readers will see that you know, where I say that early on in my search for seven, <laughs> like uh, subjects for this book, When I began my search, you know, I was really trying to prioritize class and racial diversity. Yet Mm -hmm. I was reminded of the fact that food media for so long has really excluded uh, people who are not middle to upper middle class. And it has also done a really bad job of giving black women the capital to tell their own stories. And so those were two things that I really had to work through as I was uh, putting this book together.
1: The work of Bue, Elena, Norma, Najmia, and many others elevated in a way the perception of their cuisine's worth, right? The restaurants they started or were instrumental in starting, the cookbooks they wrote, all of those things generated a lot of buzz around eating this new and different cuisine. And throughout this book and throughout time, I think we see again and again, these examples of people and uh, general public and food media engaging in this, like eating the other um right where the cuisine and more palatable aspects of these like cultures are things that folks participate in eagerly but the people and the culture as a whole neither of those are respected or carry the same sort of value mm-hmm. that is like placed upon the food itself so how did this come up for the women you profiled
0: it, it came up constantly especially in the early chapters because before the 1965 heart seller act which was kind of a landmark immigration law you know there so many uh very restrictive immigration laws uh, that existed in america and targeted specific groups Um, one of the most obvious examples to me is the 1882 uh, chinese exclusion act and you know that a lot of its central tenets were in place for a very long time Uh, it wasn't until the 1943 magnuson act really started to make some incremental repeals to it and uh in spite of of the fact that there was this institutionalized discrimination against Chinese uh, immigrants uh, in America uh, you know enshrined in law white Americans they did have an appetite for Chinese cooking and Chinese food or at least what they imagined uh, Chinese food to be chop suey which has a uh, you know uh, tangled origins let's say uh, you know uh, was a very popular dish that a lot of white Americans consumed and you know, there was occasional interest, especially in the early 20th century, uh, in Chinese dishes and uh, bringing those into the home. You know, you would see those uh, articles about uh, that very topic in a lot of uh, women's magazines. Mm -hmm. And in spite of the fact that the Chinese Exclusion Act was still very much, (laughs) you know, in effect in America. And so I was reminded of just how, I guess, naive, uh, the notion that food can bring us together and be a unifying force is because food as an object is not powerful enough to erase the sort of uh, institutional or uh, political discrimination that exists in laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so that was the era uh, right after which, uh, you know, Buwei was working her first uh, cookbook nineteen forty five, 1945's uh, How to Cook and Eat in Chinese. You know, when it came out, it was really trying to show Americans a world of Chinese cooking beyond uh, Cantonese uh, cooking. And it was thought by many historians till today to be the first systematically thorough Chinese cookbook uh, published in the English language in America. Yet, you know, she was working uh, and writing this in a time when there was just so much <laughs> Uh, discrimination against Chinese people in America in law, and so I really wanted to complicate this notion that food is powerful enough to break barriers because it is what I see in so many dominant narratives surrounding immigration and uh, food in America, at least in the food media. And it's it's always kind of uh, troubled me a little bit, you know. <laughs> so
1: in an earlier Real Food Reads pick, I interviewed Paloma Martinez Cruz, who wrote this book mm-hmm. called Food Fight. And she said, if only our bordered bodies could circulate as freely and exaltedly as burritos. If only our children were as beloved as our chalupas. Um, And yeah, like there are limits to this like gastronomic diplomacy. Uh, There's only so much food can do to address the violence and harms of white supremacy. So So, I know you just spoke to some of these limits. Um, Can we talk about? like representation and commodification and cultural appropriation? Like, where are the lines? What are the Uh, limits?
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Super easy question. Now,
1: um, (laughs) you have 10 seconds. (laughs)
0: Right. Totally. Let's go. Oh, my God. Well, I was thinking of this constantly as I was writing this book, because a lot of the women in my early chapters, uh, they made moves in their cooking and in their cookbooks that some people might deride as a accommodationist today and i realized that it was not my place as a writer uh, you know operating in the mindset of 2019 2020 which is when i was writing the bulk of this book to cast judgment on these women for uh, these uh, seeming compromises that they may have made because they were facing a set of challenges as immigrant women ones who did have material privilege, like I said earlier, but still they were immigrant women, uh, who were just trying to survive in a deeply xenophobic time and in a country that was, you know, quite racist and quite misogynistic in a lot of ways. But you see a little less of uh, that sort of appetite for compromise, let's say, (laughs) you know, as you kind of travel through the chapters in this book. And I think that a lot of these women, uh, you know, were uh, really passionate about opening the white American mind to, you know, the flavors of their home country. I think the most potent example that comes to mind is that of a Najmi Abad Manglic, who is from Iran. She was self-publishing Iranian cookbooks originally for people in the Iranian diaspora. She was writing for her own community, not the white gaze yet. You know, her books eventually caught on with this wider audience and she did not make a ton of ingredient substitutions to, you know, really like ease the American mind into Iranian cooking. No, she was just like, this is what Iranian cooking is. This is the food of my home. And what you see is what you get. She's not going to, you know, make any shortcuts in any way. She had a fealty to uh, the flavors and the recipes of her home. When it comes to kind of the appropriation uh, part of your question, what I was really asking myself is, well, who is benefiting materially from telling certain stories or documenting certain cuisines? Uh, what was really um, upsetting to me when writing that Elena Zelieta chapter is the fact that you know she, during her lifetime, she was uh, celebrated as the authority on Mexican uh, cooking in America by folks like Craig Claiborne, our friend Craig Claiborne, I just mentioned, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, yet after she died, I believe, in the early 1970s, that kind of position that she had held was usurped by Diana Kennedy, who was a white British woman who, uh, you know, fell in love with the foods and foodways of Mexico and then began documenting them with her uh, first cookbook in 1972, I believe is when it was published, uh, and she uh, went forward from there.
1: And now we have Rick Bayless. Or... <laughs> exactly.
0: And I'm I'm trying to be generous here and say that, you know, a lot of these folks may have really been quite diligent uh, about making sure that they were rendering, uh, you know, the nuances of these cuisines that were not ones they had ancestral ties to uh, with care and with sensitivity. And with a lot of diligence. And I think that you do see uh, some of that in the Diana Kennedy's work, certainly. Yet, the fact of the matter is that she is a white British woman who does not have ancestral ties to Mexico, at least to my knowledge. And she has become the authority on Mexican cooking in America. And, you know, she eclipsed, you know, Elena Zelieta in public memory. And you have to wonder how many other uh, people who may not have had the same privileges that diana kennedy had you know did not even get the same opportunities that she did just because of the privileges that uh, she carries so that was what i was really asking myself as i was uh, you know putting these stories to the page
1: okay so just switching gears a tiny tiny bit i want to talk about fine dining mm-hmm. i think like, you and i both live in areas with a great dining scene right? you're mm-hmm. in new york city i'm in the bay area and I'm just thinking about some restaurants that opened up recently in the Bay Area, a Cantonese spot and a Filipino spot that are more like upscale or fine dining ventures, and they both received a lot of buzz as being the first or one of the few um, fine dining ventures of that type of cuisine. Um, and I have so many conflicting thoughts about this. Why is this such a Eurocentric concept? But how did the women you profiled navigate this sort of fine dining question and if the food deserves to be fine dining and what those standards sort of mean and who created them
0: yeah yeah so you know my sense from you know spending a lot of time with uh, each of these uh, women's stories is that you know this was that very metric that you're talking about was often determined by folks at the very top of the food establishment who were white middle top middle class you know had a lot of wealth and uh, other sorts of privileges and they were the ones who deemed certain uh, cuisines worthy of respect more than others. So, those figures, like the aforementioned Craig Claiborne, you know, they were also the people who were kind of determining these sorts of standards. And I saw in the stories of a lot of these women, they had to fight to really. Uh, be accepted by those gatekeepers one for example is julie sani who was born in india she was reportedly according to my research and other claims by other journalists uh, she was reportedly the first indian female uh, chef at a new york restaurant and the perception from the american food media at least to my knowledge is that she was uh, this is such a loaded word so I'm doing scare quotes, but you can't see it. Uh, it she's <laughs> elevating "quote unquote" Indian cooking, <laughs> you know, to right. the realm of fine dining in some way. Uh, and she was making it for a certain affluent and uh, privileged clientele. And through just uh, cooking Indian dishes uh, in that sort of context, uh, the cuisine itself, or the cuisines within India, let's say, because there are many cuisines in India, you know, automatically were assigned more worth by the food media and the food establishment. And another story I'm reminded of is uh, Norma Shirley, because like I said earlier, she was born in Jamaica, but then lived abroad in many countries before settling in America for a time. But after a few years of working in the Berkshires, Norma, she decided to try out New York. She wanted to open uh, her own Jamaican restaurant, a kind of a uh, put Jamaican cooking in conversation with French technique as she had been doing in the Berkshires. Uh, Yet, when she arrived in New York, she realized that in her own words, she was just a dime a dozen in that city. You know, she was another nobody who could cook. And she did not have access, uh, you know, to capital or didn't have enough proximity to people within the food establishment for her to really mount that project. And so after a few attempts of really trying to make that uh, dream a reality, she was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then in the mid 1980s, she decides that she misses home so much and she has a desire to cook for Jamaicans and black Jamaicans in particular. And she just cannot do that within the confines of America. So she leaves America goes back to Jamaica, her home country. And after that, that's when she is able to open her own restaurants in her own name. And that's when she becomes a star in the eyes of the American food media. Yet it took her literally exiting America because the food establishment was so just unimaginative when it came to even respecting uh, Jamaican cooking for its inherent value and worth back in that day. And that prejudice persists. It certainly persisted well after she went back to Jamaica. You know, there's a, I believe, a 1999 quote from uh, Esquire uh, where a certain uh, critic, I will not name, uh, but his name is in the book. Um, you know, <laughs> he says uh, something along the lines of, Jamaica does not leap to mind when I think of great food. And uh-huh. it's just so, I mean, stomach turning to me uh, just how nakedly racist um a lot of american food writing could be and you know yeah. still holds true but there are definitely lots of mask off moments uh just as recently as 1999
1: the audacity to say something like that great food comes from everywhere sir yeah. oh my goodness i
0: mean <laughs> yeah it, it boggles the mind that that could go to print but i think that there there's something that is just so fascinating to me tiffany about like food and sometimes how far behind uh this world feels compared to other uh, spheres of culture, you know, I think that it really does tie back to this perception that everyone eats food and food brings us together. It's a sort of a neutralizing uh, force. And I think that some folks uh, might easily conflate that with food itself being apolitical or not uh, being tied to any sort of uh, political context because it is just this object that uh, everyone consumes. And my perception is that a lot of people who end up in this industry, including people I'm you know, very happy to call colleagues and peers, they come to food because of the love for the object, uh, even if they may not have thought about the deeper issues that food really brings up. And so that that might be a reason why just because you know there is this fixation and historically has been this fixation in a lot of american food writing on food just as an object uh divorced Uh of any sort of context and i hope that's changing and i think it is i don't know i'm not holding my breath
1: so i want to talk about the the gatekeepers and the they like king makers or queen makers uh craig claiborne and james beard they Mm -hmm. come up well craig claiborne comes up in every profile i believe and then James Beard and and most of them. So can you tell me about the role that they play in the food establishment?
0: Yeah, so they were pretty much at the very top of the food establishment, along with Julia Child. Um, I believe that the late food writer Molly O'Neill called them the gastronomic trinity in this 2003 Columbia Journalism Review article that is really fantastic and just helped me establish a framework for just food writing in general. So I hope that all listeners seek that piece out. (laughs) Uh, But regardless, James Beard and Craig Claiborne, they were figures of tremendous influence. And they were both, uh, you know, gay men, but they were also white. (laughs) They were male or male presenting. And as a result, uh, they had a lot of privileges. uh, And so proximity to them, really helped a lot of these women gain access to capital and opportunity that otherwise would not have been available to them because this industry wasn't necessarily designed to accommodate them
1: yeah and so you won a James Beard award for writing yeah. uh, Yikes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: they screwed up there now
1: <laughs> but can you tell me about the role that it's played in for you and in your professional life? Yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, um, writing this book definitely clarified a lot for me because I have been gently critical, I will say, of the food media in general and the food establishment. When I look back on the past five years, you know, I realized that I have been very fortunate to get certain kinds of institutional recognition, like the kind that you just mentioned. And that opened up so much access to capital and opportunity i feel like i'm beating a dead horse here excuse me (laughs) you know um that otherwise would not have been available to me just because of who i am i am a queer person of color i'm brown you know i have a name that most people cannot pronounce on their first try i think that when you look to the faces of people who rise to some degree of prominence in this industry they're usually not people who look like me and so there are a lot of barriers to access that were eased as a result of this sort of recognition which by the way I I do think is arbitrary to some extent like I think that there are other writers in this industry who are far more talented than me on a solo bar but they're far more talented than me and they work way harder than I do and they don't have certain hardware to their name that would allow them to get a book deal uh, you know in the way that I was able to and so I try to be very pragmatic about just kind of what uh, this sort of recognition has given me and allowed me to do. But the last thing that I would ever want, and I realized this even when I started getting that sort of recognition back in 2018, um, the last thing I would want for myself is to begin parroting the very aspects of uh, the industry that I find so troubling. I don't After being welcomed into the club, so to speak, I don't want to become part of the very problem that I'm trying to write against because that just seems so uh, morally bankrupt to me. (laughs) And I really tried to uh, diplomatically push against the problems that uh, we see uh, in the American food media with this book, as I've tried to do with a lot of my work. But yeah, yeah, I mean, who knows? Um, This book probably would not exist had I not gotten that sort of recognition that we were just talking about.
1: So what do you think that people can do, uh, readers or consumers of food media can do just to do better and to not sort of perpetuate these issues?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I thought about that a lot because I hate the notion that the onus should be on consumers when these are systems-wide issues that require systems-wide solutions, you know? Um, But before we just kind of demolish everything and start fresh, um, I would say (laughs) that, you know, what readers can do is really examine where their money is going and ask yourself, am I supporting a magazine or publication through my wallet that has time and time again proven that it does not care about marginalized communities or the communities that I belong to? Is there another publication or independent creator whom I can uh, reroute that uh, very small amount of capital to instead? Because those are the voices that are uh, traditionally uh, excluded from the mainstream food media. I really want to create an e- ecosystem in which young writers who are coming up in this industry, they don't aspire to get bylines in, you know, the big traditional newspapers and publications or food classes. I want them to really aspire to write for a super rad, progressive, <laughs> independent food publication. And I want that to be a sign that they have really made it. You know, I want to really uh, shift the culture in some way. Uh, and there's a lot that happened in 2020 in food media that can occupy a whole hour or seven of you know, us talking. Um, but I do think that uh, the events of last year may have made more readers aware of efforts like Whetstone, for example, by Stephen Satterfield. And there are so many other independent uh, food publications and creators like Alicia Kennedy, who's my friend, yes. who I like, you know, mention in every other interview, but she really, <laughs> uh, you know, her her perspective it is a truly leftist perspective. Yeah. And I have struggled to have my own politics reflected in the work that i do for the publications that i've written for because they tend to be just barely left of center if not completely conservative you know and so it is so refreshing to see a voice like alicia kennedy's just rise to such prominence over the past a year or two you know she deserves it all and i want to see more alicia kennedy's you know and so Uh, That's what I tell readers to seek those people out and ask yourself, am I supporting this magazine that has uh, had a lot of mask off moments in the past few years? Or am I supporting the next Alicia Kennedy or the next Whetstone?
1: Yeah, we love Alicia Kennedy and Whetstone and Stephen Satterfield at Real Food Media. And so, yeah, we could be be subscribing to those magazines or to their Substacks and giving them our money while also organizing and trying to make some systematic changes happen
0: yeah totally and that's that's hard work and i wish i had an easy answer for you know (laughs) how to do that but you know boycotts (laughs) for example
1: okay so i have one final question for you i'd love to hear about some of the women in your life that have revolutionized food for you
0: Oh, so this is such a great question. Uh,
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah,
0: good job. Um, first one to ask me this the answer is no one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the answer <laughs> is going to be so. Yeah, all right. Um, no, the answer is going to be super cliche, uh, but I promise I'm going to try to get it to a place that's satisfying. It is my mother. My mom really is my best friend. A little bit about her, because I don't really write about her in the book, ex- aside from in the acknowledgements. Uh, you know, she is an immigrant from the Indian state of West Bengal. She'd grown up in a village and she had arranged marriage to my father, uh, my late father, in the early uh, 1980s. And that brought her to New Jersey, which is where I was born in the early 90s. And in making that transition, she faced so many challenges that I just cannot imagine. Just having to uproot your life, no longer have access to your immediate family. Instead, live in this sort of, under these sort of conditions where these strangers... You had never quite met. Where you know suddenly, people you had to call family. You had to learn a different language. You had to shop differently for groceries. You had to do all the cooking, everything, while missing home and staving off that sense of homesickness. It's just a set of struggles that I can't comprehend because I was, you know, born into relative luxury compared to everything that she has gone through. And growing up, I. I was so close to my mom, and I still am. She is my best friend, uh, and I was so close to her that I think that I absorbed her humility in a lot of ways, like the humility, humility that she had about herself. Excuse me. And I think one uh, scenario in which that really played out was uh, when it came to her cooking. She is a marvelous cook. I know that's uh, kind of a you know expected for any uh, you know child to say <laughs> about their own mother's cooking. Yet yeah, she really is spectacular. Yet she always had uh, a sense of kind of sheepishness uh, around uh, sort of like assigning any sort of worth or value to her cooking. You know, it was just a performance of duty that so many people in uh, our family unit kind of um, expected of her. And she didn't think it was anything special yet. You know, it took me being a food writer, especially writing this book, to understand just, you know, the beauty and the art that was in this labor of hers. And I realized just, you know, in writing this book, how often cooking in the home, especially the kind that is done by women, is devalued by uh, the surrounding culture, which is so just blatantly misogynistic in this country, right. And oftentimes, that sort of discrimination begins in the home. And I I looked at my own home, and I realized that that was very much the case. Uh, And so she really shaped the the way that uh, I think about cooking. She shaped my palate, certainly, and I'm grateful to her. And so I do hope that when she reads this book, she can see a very, very tiny part of her story as an immigrant woman reflective.
1: Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much for sharing about your mom. Thank <laughs> you. Really
0: thanks, for, thanks for entertaining it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, that is it for us. I thank you again so much for taking time out of your jam packed schedule and like book tour to do this interview. I really appreciate it. And it was so nice talking with you.
0: Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Real Food Reads. To learn more about Mayuk, his book Tastemakers, and our other Real Food Read selections, visit our website at www.realfoodmedia.org.